Welcome back to the podcast, Private View. Conversations with artists in their studios about their art practices. Produced and hosted by me, Jack Duplock. I hope you enjoyed the previous episodes. If you haven't listened to them yet, they're still available on Spotify. Just search Private View. Also now through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a comment. It will make it easier for others to find it. How are you all? Have you all keeping safe and surviving this lockdown? It's been a strange period of time for me uh, of reflection. How about you? It's also been a while since I published an episode apologise for that. I've been trying to work out how I can continue having conversations with artists while maintaining self-isolation during this COVID-19 pandemic. In the meantime, here was a conversation I had with the artist Matthew Curran last year in my studio. I met Matthew when I invited him to be in a show I created in 2013, titled Gathering, that explored the influence of folk art in contemporary art, one of the subjects we talk about in this episode. In this episode, the format is slightly different. This time, the conversation was led by Matthew talking to me about my practice. For research, he was doing for his PhD about the creative process. During the conversation, we both made a mask out of a handkerchief to emphasise the collaborative aspects of creativity, the reciprocal process of sharing ideas about creativity. Even though the conversation was more about my practice, we both shared ideas about a mutual interest with folk art and folk story. Matthew Cohen is a New Zealand artist, now living in Berlin and Helsinki, working in various mediums such as photography, film, installation and performance. Matthew's work references traditional European customs playing with inherent strangeness of the continued popularity of long-established folk customs in a contemporary world. He's shown his work in major institutions across Europe and internationally. Please check his work out on his website matthewcohen.net or follow him on Instagram at matthewcohen. Nearly at the end of the conversation, Matthew uh, talks briefly about a subject that he's been researching for a very long time, which is the mummers. The mummers are where the Morris dancers uh, originate from. I hope you enjoy this episode.
first thing to mention is um, while I've been um, making these conversations for yeah. my research, I have um, I was really thinking about how to do it in the beginning, and um, firstly, I didn't want to make just interviews because I wanted this to be a conversation between an artist and another artist or, an, or another person who was making work in this field and um, and and then I was thinking about well what is produced from from these kind of conversations and of course there's the the idea that uh, that there's interesting facts or knowledge that comes out or agreements or disagreements and then secondly I thought well okay so we're artists or I'm an artist and um, uh, it would be nice to make something else, some other piece that comes out of the conversation. And so what, what I have been doing is every person that I talk to, um, I've been asking if it would be possible to make a uh, handkerchief mask okay. while we're speaking, or at least begin to do that. And so a handkerchief mask is like one of the most simplest ways of making some sort of uh, folkloric uh, costume because handkerchiefs are like really simple material and they're easy to as well. Yeah. yeah. And um, so would you be okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really open to interpretation how we how we do it. And um, at the end of this this process of talking to a few people, I'll have kind of a set of masks which have been produced out of the conversations that we have. And so one of, one of the ways of doing it is either uh, all we have to do is measure the distance between your eyes and your mouth on okay. a handkerchief and then cut the holes. And then either we can work on the handkerchief or you can work on the handkerchief now or you can give it to me and I, I can, I can uh, make it into a mask later based on what we talked about or it's completely up to you, but I have like needle and thread. Yeah. Well, because you're a painter, I thought perhaps you could paint your mask if you wanted to. Um, yeah, I could paint. I mean, the needle and thread yeah. is a bit out of my yeah, skill yeah. set. So, so um, um, it's completely so. up to you. I mean, one thing that I, I, I had suggested to other people is that I might. Uh, uh, make some text or something on the mask later okay. that related to what we talked about but yeah. if, if, the, if, if you would like to do that it's up to you as well you could you could do that too I could write something about text yeah because um, uh, the masks are very much the kind of repressive thing of my, my work yeah. through yeah. My exploration of yeah. shamanism and yeah, the yeah. animalistic yeah. mask. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I've also I've been thinking about costume yeah. as well as a okay. as a kind of form of um, as a form of transformation mm. Mm. in itself. Yeah, um, because I I seem to. Uh, each each kind of figure in my work, I seem to get get into this um, 
uh, let's call it um, every time I make a every time I, I draw a, a figure in the work mm. I'm always quite interested in what costume they're wearing and mm. very um, uh, interested in the detail of that mm. so in actual fact okay. there's the figure yeah. behind the mask yeah. Also, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's quite interesting layering. And I, I think the figures became, the masks came through. I was doing a lot of these kind of portraits that, um, that had no like, eyes. They were just like, mm. I would just draw a, a black. Mm. Yeah. So it had no kind of personality, mm. no. Mm -hmm. um, representation of anyone yeah um and i kind of have no idea why i did that mm. i think it was just um i think i sort of drew I drew the eyes and then realized i didn't really like the eyes <laughs> so i took the eyes and it, and also once you draw eyes it becomes someone mm. and yeah without the eyes mm. it has a very mystery to mm. it for sure um, it could be quite dark mysteriousness, but um, uh, I began to find that mm. was more interesting than yeah, yeah. than trying to kind of like create. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now there's more more of the figures in my recent work. Mm. They are either eyes are closing or mm. the eyes are, there are like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Actual eyes, yeah, 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 on the face, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, one of the reasons that I came to this idea of masks is one that was really super simple and uh, accessible. But actually, when I really think about it, it's really at the core of what I'm interested in about the idea of uh, folk traditional folk costume and ritual as a yeah. kind of transformation into someone else um, and uh, this kind of temporary otherness that you can get through these, through these costumes. But in this situation, this kind of uh, conversation between us, I'm interested in the fact that uh, there's this Oscar Wilde quote, uh, which is, if you give a man a mask, he will tell you the truth. And, um, and I thought it's a nice kind of little uh, exercise, at least, in thinking about what it means for these costumes and for us as artists who are dealing with this kind of stuff all the time. But, you know, it's just a little exercise to, um, to make us think again about that. So, so in a way, that's almost like because when, if you're Catholic and you go in confession, mm -hmm. you're almost in a box that's like a mask. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't see the person that you're talking to. Yeah. So you don't have that personal connection. Yes, and so yes. you can like say anything. Yeah, yeah. So you can say the truth because mm -hmm. you feel like mm -hmm. they um the person that you're saying the truth to mm. they can't see your yes. expression on your face. And in a way it's quite a dark concept. Yeah. Because if you think about how internet trolls are working. Yeah. Madly at the moment, it's kind of a people virtual, can, yeah, virtual mask. Yeah, people can hide behind this whole 
anonymity that the mask of the, the internet gives them and it really becomes quite dark. I'm not sure that maybe that's a human truth that you know that uh, it's also it's also possible that there's a lot of kind of uh, darkness in hiding that there is actually a social function of being visible <laughs> yeah um, maybe that's kind of what uh, rituals and folklore are getting at that you know that uh, if you have a chance to hide then it's revealing um, uh, sometimes uh, things which are not necessarily good or bad but that the, they're there and that the uh, the, the normal everyday social situation doesn't allow to be seen. That there's a kind of time of costume or ritual or custom or some kind of rite is um, is a kind of a parallel that that, um, that exposes something that's maybe truth is the wrong word, but existing. Mm. Yeah, and. Um, it's a physical connection with the ritual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, which be, with us having more and more um, reliance on uh, the internet and mm. new media and social media, mm. we're going, we're, we're sort of distance ourselves from yeah. that yeah. more yeah. and more. Yeah. And we're not connected to. Mm. Um, well, I suppose it's quite interesting because the internet was an idea of community, which like ritual and folk. Mm. It was like a that's the original this utopia of um, ideal that mm. it came out of mm. um, that we're going to be connected to the globe and that mm. it's going to be a global community. Mm. But it's obviously it has like sort mm. of um, gone the other way in mm. a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, unexpected, isn't it? Yeah. That, that would happen. Yeah. But maybe it should have been expected. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I mean, it's kind of like utopia is an ideal that mm. um, it's obviously cannot. Yeah. Can it, it can sort of um, can, can begin in a positive way, but yeah. Yeah. there's always someone who wants to uh, lead or yeah yeah um doesn't agree with sure. utopian ideals yeah. and stuff so yeah. yeah it's obviously not a possibility this utopian <laughs> ideal yeah it was yeah. implodes or explodes itself yes yes after a period of time yes yeah you see this a lot with kind of um Happy communities, yeah, set up in the seventies that lasted fifteen years and ran out of <laughs> ran out of steam. Yeah. So um, you have to choose one of these. There's a selection. <coughs> Uh, 
got my scissors confiscated on the uh, security check on the, on the way over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I say this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I forgot to bring a picture of how the other masters work, but basically how how I've been doing them is that uh, cut like a strip down yeah. two sides, and yeah. that gives you uh, some strings, which you can then sew on here and here, and then you okay, tie that string around back so Need some more scissors to open this. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, cool. yeah, it's considered a weapon, isn't it? Scissors. Yeah, the security guard had like a little um little chart. And my scissors were about one centimetre too long. Oh yeah. So to buy a new pair. Yeah, yeah, so I got these at Terry's uh on different high streets. Um, if you take the your package, you can probably just slide it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had them in my hand luggage stupidly. That's why uh, I, I, sh I have a little suitcase as well. As oh, so you can, yeah. Mm. So I just brought. Yeah, yeah. So cut a strip down the down the down it. Like yeah, all yeah. The way I follow that stripe there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I did. I did prepare some some questions for you. Okay. But as as I arrived, I thought that maybe a nice thing to start with. Oh, yeah. oh they're only cheap scissors, yeah. So yeah, these are. Yeah, professional painters' scissors. Canvas. Mm -hmm. Um. I thought maybe we could go back to um, the gathering show. Yeah, and you could talk about uh, the origins of that, and um, and what we, what was your thinking around the time that you're putting that together, and how did you uh, choose the artists for that exhibition, and what did you get out of it when you reflect back on it now? Um, the origin of the show was um, I kind of created a show that was a solo show mm -hmm. and the agency called it was called Rainbow House uh -huh. um, <coughs> uh, I was seeing a lot of folk references in my work about this period of time. Yeah. Like I was starting to do these animalistic sort of portrait masks, um, paintings. Um, that at the time I wasn't really associating with shamanism, but um, in a conversation with B, just kind of like mentioned shamanism. Yeah. So mm -hmm. since then, I've kind of like mm. explored more of the ideals. Mm. Um, I mean, most of the, my ideas have come out of um, popular culture and cinema. In it. So um, 
and this relationship between the imagination and the landscape, which is mm. very much yeah. um, uh, elements of folk yeah. and folk story and mm. fairy tale, where mm. um, it's about a way of understanding nature mm. and, and um, the climate mm. you live in mm. through magic realism. Mm. Yeah. So this is my This is my starting point. So, I was make, also making sort of landscape paintings with figures, figures that were doing quite obscure yeah. ritual rituals. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't really sure where the what these rituals were. They were just yeah. kind of something out of my imagination. Yeah. Um, I mean, now I've become more sort of looking at fairy tales, mm. folk stories, mm. and yeah. more uh, trying to create more context yeah. context to my work yeah. through through research. But at that time, I was just kind of like playing with this yeah. figure, and the figure mm. often came from popular culture. Mm-hmm. Like I was doing work, um, I was referencing David Bowie. Mm. I consider so modern day contemporary uh, popular culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shamanism, things from subcultures like mm. skateboarders, hippies, yeah. and, and um, mm. things like that. Yeah. So I decided to read. Um, actually, it was this book here, "Spaced Out," uh-huh. which is radical environments, and this is why I, I um, it's basically a book about how. Uh, how psychedelic periods and um, LSD mm-hmm. influenced how architects made buildings, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the first few chapters, the first few chapters is all about like crazy yeah. um, ideas about space and how space changes. Um, when you are kind of hallucinating, when you're going through this yeah. kind of sort of um, process of having a trip and mm. things. But then it, the interesting thing was about this when this, this idea when uh, the utopian idea of t- it, in San Francisco st- at the end of the 60s started to um, implode. Yeah. There were a there were a group of um, there were a sort of group of people who were part of that community who mm. who started to move out into the countryside mm. and started to build mm. um, these communities out mm. in the wilderness, mm. Mm. Um, building out of like scraps of yeah. uh, woods they found and stuff, yeah. Yeah. but also making these. Uh, uh to fill the domes. Yeah, yeah. There was a whole kind of like, there was almost, there were like um, architectural uh, universities who went out and built these yeah. kind of like sort of geometric. Um, this kind of tapped into my my mm. sort of interest in. Mm. In sort of counterculture, public culture, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and things. 
So, Radio House was an idea of having this kind of like idea of a community, but it was yeah. artists yeah. that I brought together yeah. and made a show. Yeah. Um, so the show was kind of a symbolic community yeah. through the artworks, yeah. representing the people. Yeah. And they all the artists were we used were like. Um, uh, we're influenced by folk in mm. in some in yeah. kind of, sort of, in kind of in kind of way. Just to just to uh, ask you, what is your definition of folk? Um, well, definitely, folk is like an oral tradition uh-huh. um, through. Um, I go through through. I mean, my my. My sort of um, area of kind of stories, or yeah, um, they were like told orally about, mm-hmm. mainly sort of mm-hmm. about the community that they were based in. Yeah, it was very community centric. Yeah, it was very local. Yeah, her- heritage. Yeah, um, but also the craft is mm-hmm. is kind of um, is part of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and tradition. And tradition, yeah. yeah. And ritual. And sort yeah. Of ritual. Yeah. So it's quite often, so it's really something like uh, knowledge held held by a community or yeah. locality or a family, even perhaps. Yeah. Folklore. Yeah, folklore. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I, can con- see, I can see how that, that made up. Like, this wide range of artists that contributed to the show has come yeah. from different angles on that concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I suppose there's a few exceptions like um, the artist Jamie Shovelin mm-hmm. created this um, archive that was based on a fictional uh, German uh, prog band and he made a website and sort of backstory Mm. Mm. that made it really convincing that this Mm. band actually existed Mm. and the idea that they um, they disputed their music was by um uh, fan sending a, 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 like a TDK mm. tape or something. Yeah, yeah. C90 tape to them and they would, they would record the music on yeah. the tape and the fans would design their own covers. So yeah. he, he'd made this whole series of covers <laughs> and um, invented a fan who's interested yeah. who, mm. of, you know, each, each um, design yeah. Yeah. Uh, was um affiliated to Pacific by fans. I was quite interested in that. I mean, I suppose that's not really a folk sense. Community, really. Yes, community. And I I was quite interested because I know that that actually happened Mm. uh, in East East Germany. Yeah. Um, A lot of of band, because they couldn't access a lot of music that was being produced in the West. Uh But I think occasionally... 
someone from the west or someone from the yeah. east managed to get into the west yeah. and they would come back with this music yeah. Yeah. and bootleg it mm-hmm. onto tapes mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of bands from the west who had no idea that they had a big fan base mm. Mm. in the east mm. through this like um, uh, network of yeah, yeah. <laughs> Of like a community or network yeah. of kind of like, yeah. Yeah. and in a sense that's kind of a another idea of um, uh, of kind of that oral tradition of yeah. passing things on. Yes, yes. I was I was thinking when you're talking about him that his the, the, for that particular artwork the fact that the whole thing was faked. It's quite yeah. an interesting thing because as as artists working in this field, I guess we're all kind of dealing with fakes. That we're either you use a ready made, like you appropriate an actual folkloric object or cultural object or performance, or you kind of fake it by translating it into an artwork which is something else. And um uh, I guess all the artists in the in the gathering were somehow faking or re-representing. Yeah, sort of appropriating something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And um, that that leads leads me on to a question that I remember we talked about in Berlin quite a lot, and I really liked what the conversation was was about your process of uh, research. In coming to your work, uh, I think we have been talking about Iceland, and but but also in general your process of research and how it is that you uh, translate folklore, folk tales, folk knowledge into the end product, which is a painting, and and what is the change of the translation that's happened over that period? Because that's really the work of of you as an artist. Yeah. And uh, what has happened? <laughs> How has it become uh, an artwork? And what's your role in that? And all the decisions that have happened along the way are, are uh, sometimes we don't think about it as artists, what we're doing. But uh, really, there's quite many decisions that get made to turn this uh, folklore, folk knowledge, um, whatever into the finished product mm. yeah um <coughs> it's kind of a yeah like it's kind of a sort of a long sort of process mm. they go through mm. um i'm constantly doing research mm. so what is research for you then like reading and yeah. and looking at the, like mm. taking pictures and mm. of landscapes and stuff mm. i mean like the landscape is of, often the most important like factor. So it begins with perhaps it begins with landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm taking pictures so mm-hmm. and often the the final sort of landscape that I mm-hmm. I decide to paint mm-hmm. is nothing like the work mm-hmm. of the actual image. But it's mm-hmm. on it's often a composite of mm-hmm. various sort of places. Okay. Um I'm kind of into that sort of period of like 
realism and subconscious so memory of places always drift in and out and they kind of interconnect with each other and so um, so how do you choose the landscape? Um, that's, that's often the subconscious way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of looking at the landscapes and yeah. I kind of decide, okay, that one is interesting. I'd quite like to. Urban or rural? Mostly rural. Mm. Um, I'm still doing a lot of work based on. Uh, Iceland. Mm. Yeah, it had quite a big influence on it. Yeah. Um, but I'm also interested in, in, um, in the sea at the moment because mm. I had a kind of an epiphany when I was in Iceland because mm. there was a coastal, it's a northern yeah. coastal uh, uh, village where we were like based. And um, I was standing on the beach looking out mm. and it kind of reminded me of other seas mm. that I've um, experienced mm. going all the way back to growing up in Charmouth which is mm. the coast yeah. and um, I'm trying to kind of like sort of think about that mm. kind of those connections mm. and, and the fact that sea is very much a mysterious and quite yeah. a it's, all, it's, it's an element that's always kind of represented yeah. in um I suppose when I talk folk stories, I talk about fairy tales now, mm-hmm. actually, because I'm yeah. reading, reading a lot of, sort of fairy tales, um, uh, Japanese fairy tales, actually, mm-hmm. at the moment. It's very much kind of... Mm-hmm. They, they t- there's very, the sea is very much an important mm-hmm. element in yeah. their work, and mm-hmm. um, obviously the animalistic yeah. elements as well, kind mm-hmm. of. Uh, so I guess what what you're saying is that um, when you saw when you had that moment in Iceland and you you saw the sea, the the sea kind of represented something something else another sea. Yeah. You. So, and when I see your work, the landscape is kind of symbolic landscape. So if, if for the viewer of your work, this landscape is represent is is also symbolic, it's representing some other landscape for them, it's not specific That's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in some way that, that you as artists have translated whatever the original was into symbolic, you're, you're kind of making symbols through... Yeah, yeah. I think that's good, yeah. In the setting, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's quite interesting because somehow this folk knowledge or folk... Um, Everyone understands how it works because it's kind of a very human thing that every culture has their storytelling, their fairy stories, their children's nursery rhymes, whatever. And um, so everyone understands kind of the structure and the framework, conceptual framework of what is a folktale or a story or a magical place. And so people don't even think about that. They just, oh yeah, okay, I recognize that in, in your painting. And it might be something completely different to what another person does but they they recognize it in there and they fill in the gaps of, of what it is so in a way you're kind of generating the imagination of the viewer that, that the knowledge that you have in the painting is uh, 
gives energy to imagination. Yeah, mm. I think that's quite interesting. Mm. And, and try, uh, I mean, I, I'm always, try not to be too specific of a particular, I mean, yeah. the information that I get from folks' stories. Mm. I mean, I know that the meeting the historian in Iceland was very interesting mm. the way he, kept, he told me about uh, about 20, I mean, he had a book of folk stories just of that area mm. and it was like this thick mm. and he told me about several of them. Yeah. And the way I use that information is that I just take elements that I find that find connect with me rather than mm. trying to be mm -hmm. oh this is about this story. Mm -hmm. Like there was a, a story that I I've kind of gone back to that he told me about it was a field very close to where we were based mm. that was considered a um, that had sort of uh, plants that were. So to give you immortality and the story of, is of this shipwreck and the survivors bringing one of their colleagues onto the field and just realising that he's, he's obviously mm. dead and just mm. leaving him mm. in the field and then going because they were all quite sort of mm. tired and distressed and then they went and found shelter and then came back and he was alive and stuff like that and that idea of um, plants having a magical element yeah. is always repeated in other stories. Yes, yes. And it also kind of relates to counterculture mm -hmm. of yeah. taking plants to, yes. um, to experience another, uh, to the mm. experience the other mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. So it kind of tapped into those elements mm. in there. Mm. Nice. So, but uh, I, just, uh, I just pick up on something you yeah. mentioned that uh, you you identified um, uh, points in the folk tales that you you found from from a local historian, which had a real personal meaning for you. Yeah, and that's an important thing and for you as an artist. I'm sure that that. Um, but knowing, knowing what is meaning for you is uh, um, is how you select your subject. It's not uh, kind of some sort of general general um, the person the personal has has like uh, kind of deep resonance for you in, in choosing how how you're presenting it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's research at that point. Yeah. What kind of things would you look for? Can you say? Oh, in, to look for in what way? So, so, so it's, it's, for example, you're meeting with a local story, oh, yeah. Yeah. and he's telling you uh, about this field yeah. and shipwreck. How do you know? Suddenly, that's that's for you. That essentially, yeah. Um, is it visual? Is it visual? It's a visual thing, yeah. yeah. I think it's always visual. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me. Kind of when I'm reading, I'm always visual. It's like, oh yeah, I can see that, mm. like as an image. Mm. Um, and I'm always like, when I've always had this, going back to this like relationship between 
nature and and imagination how mm. imagination must manifest mm. itself I've always had this thing when I'm going in when I'm walking into a landscape mm. it's kind of a daydreaming mm. where I wouldn't say it's like an out of body experience but mm. it's kind of always like I mean I go I sort of I look at a land, I'm walking in a landscape mm. and then I start to think about mm. something else and it could be just like a film or mm. Or like an idea, mm. um, and so it's, I suppose that's why I'm drawn to magic realism mm. in the sense is that because mm. it it kind of creates your sense of place into yes. something much more, um, uh, transcendent or, yeah. mm. and I've always thought like folk tales, fairy tales mm. were always about kind mm. of that. Mm. Yes, that. The, the nature, especially, I mean, the Icelandic um, fairy tales are, very, are still actually very much fabric of mm. sight because mm. the place is so harsh. Mm. It's kind of the only way to really understand mm. your like, mm. surroundings mm. is through the stories. Mm. Yeah. Like believing that there are ghosts within a landscape mm. and things like that mm. it, it kind of you, it's the way that you, they describe mm. the changing of the climate and yeah. things like that yeah and I kind of always like that I've always thought sort of um nature is a very transient sort of place yeah you're never like in a never sort of in a concrete situation when you're walking through it it has that kind of, mm, mm. Um, and I suppose photos and photos are kind of a way of me trying to represent that in a, in a, a giving a structure to, yeah, sure. to those ideas yeah, r yeah. rather than just, um, uh, yeah, because the whole idea of mm. like, um, sort of tripping in the landscape yeah. it mm. can sound like quite woolly mm. mm. but if you have these sort of mm. like uh, research and structures behind it yeah then it course, becomes it, you mm. can actually it becomes a universal thing I remember no, la last time we talked you mentioned this uh, Simon Scammer yeah uh, I've got it here actually about the landscape and um, after we talked, I was, I was just thinking about this German word for forest, the, yeah. the wild, and um, how it's very, I really like the fact that the, they still have this idea that the forest is wild, if you make a literal translation, and that the, the wildness, for me, wild, the, the wild uh, is really important in my work, the idea of what is wild, and what, what is the function of wildness and um, it, perhaps that's another way of thinking about this kind of magicness that you describe when you walk into a landscape that's not urban the, the wildness of it has a, has a function of taking you somewhere else or maybe if you think about the definition of the word wild it's about taking off um, all of the, the uh, the restraints of the city or the restraints of uh, social social restraints that uh, hold us back and that you can get to some kind of truth 
into going into these kind of environments, kind of metaphysically or however, that there's there's more <coughs> truth in, yeah. in, in this kind of untamedness or this uh, this wildness, and I I think it's a really super interesting idea that kind of folklore is still connected with this, and folk rituals and everything are some kind of way of uh, going back or going sideways into these 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 things, and also that it it's a very human necessity to have these chances to access those things and, and you know from there you can go into all kinds of things like uh, how rock festivals or, or music festivals work today that they're very necessary thing for people to have a chance to let off steam or to uh, or to be back back to nature kind of thing yeah back to some not yeah. necessarily nature because you still have this kind of wildness that can exist in the confines of the festival, wherever yeah. the festival yeah, happens, yeah, yeah, but yeah. to get so into the state, the state of nature perhaps, where the restraints are let off, and you know, drug taking or whatever, lets yeah. people access this this kind of state of being. A step more from that, which is something else I'm interested in, is the carnivalesque and what that can do, and and that's also about costumes and masks and things like that, but. Um, yeah, maybe I've taken too many steps away from what we're talking about then, but... Um, the Burton of the Carmelists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do, you, do you have an understanding of the Carmelesque in your paintings, or is that taking it too much? Um, yeah, I do kind of have a uh, slight understanding um, of it. Um... I mean, in the sense, the figures are very much mm. like they, they become sort of carnivalist mm. creatures. Yeah. They're dressed up yeah. in a kind of sort of costume that yeah. could be uh, connected to to Pacific ritual. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've kind of been looking at Commodore del Arte mm. as well, and mm. this whole idea that you dress up, you, you you're given a a character and you dress up mm. and that character has a lot of specific traits and you become that person yeah. and I think there was a period like in the 60s and 70s that there were a lot of people who, who kind of sort of mm. um, reacted that mm. in, a, in a sort of a political mm. in a political way of mm. like sort of um yeah, the, ni the nice thing about that and, and kind of carnivalesque in general is that it has this capacity for um, comedy but also kind of revolutionary, reactionary actions. Yeah. It can take the piss very well. Because and you can be someone else. Yes. And you can say. Yeah. Mm. And you could say things that possibly you mm. wouldn't say mm. in your own sort mm. of costumes. Mm. Do you think that it's possible mm -hmm. that, that these figures in your paintings are saying, saying things? Uh, I haven't really thought, thought about it, but it's, it's a question that yeah. could be quite interesting to yeah. pursue a bit yeah. further. Yeah. Um, A lot of them look like they're alone in their own thoughts because they're in like a sort yeah. of single sort of character 
within a landscape, which I suppose could be, in a sense, me in my own thoughts walking through mm. a landscape in solitude. Mm. Um, but maybe, 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 I mean, I don't get the sense that they're actually saying things, these, these characters in your paintings. I get more of the sense that they're silent and that, and that relates more to this uh, transcendental um, hallucinogenic journey. Yeah. yeah. And um, um, yeah, so in that, in that sense, I, I feel like they're kind of silent. But in the, I can also see the references to kind of the function of the mask, which maybe it doesn't need to have speech for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you looked at the James painter that I really like? It's called James Enser. He's, yeah, yeah. He was, very, he was very much kind of. Mm, he's super. Yeah. yeah and actually, that. I remember there was a tutor of mine at Royal, Cam Royal Academy Tim called Timothy Hyman who did a book on canvas. He introduced me to James Enser, but he spent a whole year um, travelling around carnivals around Europe because uh -huh. uh, he was really into it. He survived. Yes, right. <laughs> but it was quite interesting. And I hadn't, it's the first time I actually um, was introduced to Jane Manson. It's always mm. been like... Wait, what's his name? Uh, Timothy Hyman. I have Luke, Luke, Luke Hyman's book about James Ensign. Yeah, well, he created a show at the Royal Academy okay. uh, last year. Actually, but he, he's obviously, you can see um, the influence of James mm. and so in Luke Tyman's work and the yeah. kind of the whiteness. Yeah. Mm. Whiteness and things. But it's mm. quite interesting to know that he, he James Ensor, just lived and stayed in Ostend. And that was his world. Because basically his work was all based around his friends and, and This things. is the end of the 19th century. Yeah. Mm. Um, and there's pictures of them, like his studio that had like sort of masks mm. and things. And mm. um, I think they dressed up mm. and performed kind of sort of... Uh -huh. I didn't know that. And things... Not, um, not as kind of models for painting, but actually acted out. Yeah, they were like, just hanging out, like um, just a group, small group. I got the impression that you look at these sort of pictures and, um, well, that's in this kind of strange wow. studio. Wow, look at those vases. Yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, vases, not vases. And I suppose that, the more dressing up stuff like that. So, I mean, it's a natural sort of, I think most artists at one point get involved in fancy yeah. dress parties and like sort of uh -huh. dressing up and things, uh -huh. but, sorry, should we continue? continue yeah, we this? have to measure your eyes. Okay, <laughs> take a blue round to my face first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about my sort of working process, but yeah. I'm quite interested in like, um, your starting points, because mm. very much, so you, is it very much like, when you go to residency, you, you have a specific sort of, you do yeah. research beforehand uh, and then you explore it further. In, in the, the past, that's how I've worked, yes. But you, you said that your starting point was landscape and I think yeah. for me the starting point is place, which yeah. maybe it's a subtle difference, but uh, 
I think I'm really interested in objects and uh, so you might you, you might have found an object and you want to like explore no I think I start with kind of uh, reading about customs rituals and specific kind of uh, folklore um, related to a place yeah and there's certain things that I look for like um, things that are related to costumes or certain times of the year for instance at the moment I've been working quite a lot on things that happen in the springtime and yeah masks are a big deal but also kind of folk artifacts which have function usually stand out for me because often they're, they're super handmade or mundane things which have uh, special resonance um, yeah so I often end up looking at things in museum collections and um, <laughs> that's I guess how come I've ended up uh, working with museums quite often recently um, yeah so in, in a way it's related to landscape but maybe place is a better description of that and in terms of how those move into artworks um, I've been reading recently about um, uh, the former director of the, the Ethnographic Museum in Frankfurt, her name is Clementine Delis. And she wrote an essay about uh, artists working in her museum with objects, cultural objects, artifacts, etc. And about how that there's a real problem with ethnographic museums because of cultural appropriation. Yes, this, and also yeah. the fact that what are the objects doing in the museums? They've somehow died. You know, the, 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 the museums suck the life out of them. And she had an idea, a, a proposal for thinking about uh, uh, artifacts as prototypes. That is a kind of a shift in thinking that, that uh, these are only starting points, not ending points. And I and I really liked that. That sounds quite interesting. Concept yeah. because it's really close to how myself as an artist, and I think a lot of artists research because we come across uh, a story or a mm, landscape or an object that lets us jump jump in to the artistic process from that thing and that's kind of what a prototype is, it's like a beginning thing. But in, in another sense, the artworks that we produce are also prototypes because they are uh, one-offs. Yeah. They're not mass-produced, <coughs> they're kind of... And obviously yeah. someone might later on in the future... Yeah. Mass-produce them. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like, look at it and, and make a piece of work based yeah. on your process, yeah, right? yeah, kind yeah. of thing. It's, yeah, yeah, it's part of a chain. It's, mm -hmm. it's basically like folk sort of perpetual mm. sort of, um, uh, people adapting it. Mm. Yes, yes. And so things change in a sort of very mm -hmm. subtle way, mm -hmm. but it kind of sort of, there's yes. always a, 
the original sort of starting point or whatever. Mm. Giving giving some breath and adding something new. I think yeah. that's super important to a definition of what is folklore or folk in general, that it can't be fixed. No. Yeah. Otherwise it becomes a reperformance or a reproduction that uh, there has to be a um, currency to it. Yeah. So you think there's a, a lack of interest? Is, is that the um, the director of Frankfurt saying about like uh, no, just people that are not engaged with the objects anymore? Or just that uh, ethnographic museums in Europe are very problematic places. Well, they've got so much because they're connected to empire and exactly. Um, most of the work is stolen, isn't it? The British Museum is probably the most problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes, and so then what do you do with that? How, I mean... Um, yeah, it's difficult. And I think all these things are coming out more now, mm-hmm. recently, mm-hmm. about um, recognising slave trade. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you heard about Oxford... They're trying, they're trying to sort of um, uh, re-engage with their history because I mm-hmm. think part of Oxford was built on the slave trade and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but, I mean, it's like important to do that. But it's also, you start to, you start to go down that line, you kind of, realize there's a part of history that a lot of things are connected to two very mm-hmm. um, dubious dubious yeah connections yeah. and and what would you what do you do with that it's yeah. kind of I, I feel like we're kind of only in the beginning of, of grappling with this problem because it's not a black and white issue in that often um well, the first thing is the society where the museum is has to come to terms with the how the object got there, yeah, and making reparations and, and talking to descendants or people where it had come from. Secondly, maybe the museum is the safest place for the object. Maybe not, and and also. Uh, I was the museum in Giesen where my exhibition is they're just beginning to go through this process they're just making an inventory of all the ethnographic objects they have and they have a lot from all around the world and vast numbers of them they don't know where they are or where they came from wow so yeah so these things have to be kind of grappled with and yeah who does that work and how how does it how does it function and who do you speak to about it? <laughs> so I guess one one way of doing it is this uh, process of inviting others in to ask questions about the collection and working with the objects in a completely different way, dealing with imagination and mm, transformation. Yeah. 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 And that's where you, you change, you shift the thinking from, okay, this object is at the end of its life and what is dead 
to oh, this object can take us somewhere else. And I mean, it doesn't. That's not always going to work, but it's one way. That was the um, that Cecil Sharp presence in the three million system. Yeah, the archive. Yeah, like, something happened yeah. uh, during the, the time that I was there. I mean, it was quite early for me as an artist. I you know, graduated in 2005 yeah. with an MA. And um, it was the, the year of 2009 that I was there for, for one year. And uh, I had approached them um, to see whether it might be possible to work with them in some way. And it, I was very lucky that it ended up being a year-long residency. And um, during that time, I realized that, because up until that point, I always thought of myself as like a folk insider, and in that I had, I had learned to be a folk, the Morris dancer, and I was involved with mummers, and uh, I was performing mummers with my friends and things like this, so I felt like, okay, I'm a, I'm a folk person, and I'm also an artist. But um, actually what happened during that year was that I realized it's not possible to be both. You have to be one or, one or the other because as an artist, I couldn't get away from the, seeing the context in everything. Whereas uh, I got some frustrations in, in, in that a lot of people in that world weren't thinking outside of of the folk they're so um, yeah submerged kind of, in yeah into the act of doing yes yeah yes. And, yeah. and so in a lot of ways I felt completely out of place as an artist and I felt misunderstood um, maybe I was expecting too much from the place or maybe it was the wrong audience because I showed them a lot of work there yeah and um, it was a very valuable lesson for me to learn that you know, as an artist, you're dealing with context and not black and white issues. And um, the other thing I learned from that time was that um, really making this connection to the carnivalesque and the origins of the mummers' place in, in England and this idea of the land of cocaine and this kind of um, medieval mythology of a carnivalesque world where everything's turned upside down and um, all the rich people are poor and the poor people are rich no one has to work and um, yeah did I talk to you about this before I think so. I think when um, Ben and I came down to the studio mm. you talked you were like mm. showing us things about yeah. mothers kind yeah. of I remember mm. It's quite well, an interesting sort of yeah, this is story one, one and stuff. thing that I, I pick up on, like, yeah. you know, talking about what it is that attracts your eye when you're researching anything to do with this this kind of mythical land. It's a very European myth that you get in different versions in different countries across Europe. The French have the land of cocaine. In Germany, it's called Schlaraffenland. England called Lubberland, amongst other things, also cocaine. And um, yeah, so there's, there's different names for it around, around Europe, but they're all kind of different versions of the same thing, which is this kind of very topsy-turvy, carnivalesque 
mythology, which was like a dream of uh, perfect life, utopia, originating in the Middle Ages. And in this kind of topsy-turvy, upside-down thing, you can see a lot of references to it in uh, the text or text fragments of recorded mummers plays um, from 17th, 18th, 19th century. And um, it's usually in the in the story that the doctor, the doctor's a very important character in the mummers play, and usually someone asks the doctor where he's come from, and he usually talks about uh, the place that goes this kind of topsy-turvy, backwards, upside-down kind of uh, landscapes and structures. Yeah, and when I, when, I, um, when I came across that, I was kind of connected a lot of things for me because uh, I still feel very much that I'm from the other side of the world and I have this weird kind of upside-down, back-to-front inversion from growing up in New Zealand but having essentially a European background. Um, and so I've been looking for a long time for roots in that way. And yeah. uh, <coughs> so this inversion has a lot of mm, resonance for me as an artist. And so, yeah, inversion in, in a lot of ways kind of comes out in my work, I think. But at the time, I was at Cecil Sharp House was when I really made this kind of discovery of this land of cocaine and what it, what it really means. And I think a lot of kind of folk ritual and uh, tradition that I am interested in has this carnivalesque mm, dream of perfection underneath it all. So you think that's where the, the, absolute, the absurd comes from as well? Mm. In a kind of less... Uh, yeah, well, I think maybe it goes a lot further back than medieval <coughs> times, I think. Maybe it's almost a human necessity that there's this realm where we can be absurd or we can have... You um, can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, kind of, in a superficial way, that's kind of what a festival is all mm -hmm. about. Yeah. There are, there's a Roman festival, which is almost exactly this... Saturnalia. Um, it's kind of a precursor of um, these kind of religious festivals. And also religion was very involved. There's traditions of boy bishops where the, for a day every year the bishops became choir boys and the boys became the bishops. Oh wow, that's like... Yeah, yeah. these kind of things. So even the church recognised the, the potential of these inversions. Yeah. medieval times for either everyday people to let off steam and imagine what it would be like to have power um, or kind of some sort of necessity for you know, release of anxiety or energy in some way some form of protest as well and you kind of still see that today in these huge festivals or carnivals across Europe and England they yeah. have that function. Mm. I'd like to thank 
Richard Waddle for the intro and outro music, and of course, Matthew Cohen. Goodbye. Thank <music> you.